0: it's so important for us to to have vision for our church, right? Proverbs 29 says where there's no prophetic vision, the the people cast off restraint. And so as I go through announcements today, I I want it to be almost from the lens of vision. There's tons of vision going on uh, at different levels in our district, in our ministries, in our church, and even in your personal life. And so as I give these announcements, I'm not just trying to talk up here, right? Like, I, I want you to listen in. Like, these are some really important next steps that we have for you, okay? So, first off, uh, we have our Metro District Conference. You know, I have a, a lot of interactions with some people in our church, and uh, sometimes it goes a little bit like this. <clears throat> what? We're part of a denomination. Yes. Yes, yes, we are. And so we're part of a Metro District Dozens of churches, just like our own, called the Christian and Missionary Alliance, where we get to gather together as leadership. And so, in a few weeks, on the the 14th through the 16th, uh, on the Monday and Tuesday night, the sessions are open. So, if you'd like to come, if you want to just really uh, just connect, even with some of our leaders, uh, just explore as we pursue after the presence of God as a district, we'd love for you to come. It's a deeply meaningful place for us and our our pastoral staff. And so if you can't come, at least pray for us, all right? Next up, some vision for Celebrate Recovery. We have some pretty incredible musicians in our church, right? And there's some of us, uh, even in this room, uh, who happen to be on a band called Face Down. And so from what I hear, I think Face Down is playing at this concert, and so, uh, yeah, so we would love for you to come on out. I know, that's what I saw to Tammy, too, but we'd love for you to come on out. That's going to be on October 29th at 6.30. Uh, also, quick, uh, I don't actually have a slide for this one, but out in the lobby, we have something called Missions Moments. And so, as a church, right, we love missions. Uh, living on missions is one of our core values. And so you can pick up one of these uh, bulletins in the lobby uh, just to kind of hear what is going on through our church. How are we living on mission together? Next up, we also have a baptism course. You know, three years ago, uh, I was having this conversation with God as I was moving down here, and I heard him say, I want you to get baptized. And I said, God, I've already been baptized. Like, I think... It's, it's good, and you know what, I, I, God, I wrote an eight-page theological paper, so I think I know what there is to know about baptism, and sure enough, that conversation didn't end there, and I felt a deep call, like, of, of getting baptized, and a few months after that, I got in a black suit, and I got dunked by Pastor Chris in front of all of you that I got to declare my radical identification with Christ, and so maybe it's your turn And so we have a course coming up in a few weeks, actually starting next week, uh, covering just exploring like what's it look like if you haven't been baptized to be baptized even this year. Now, as I've been going through some of these announcements, uh, maybe you've heard things like, wait a minute, we're part of a a district. Uh, We have five core values. Uh, there's, There's vision for our church. Well, if you asked any of those questions... The membership courses for you. Now, this isn't just some status where we get to wear a badge of like, look at me, I'm a member. No, this is like an exploration of what is our church doing and how can we partner with you and you with us in the direction of how God is moving and advancing his kingdom through Living Faith Alliance. So if, if you want to explore that and see even what the vision for your life is, come to our membership class. All right. So I'm going to get ready to dismiss our treasure seekers, first through fifth grade. So you can walk on slowly to the back, slowly because I'm going to walk back there, too. So otherwise, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Greg.
1: Thank you, Angelo. Nice work. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to be with you. I um, I celebrated a birthday a couple of weeks ago, and I'm old, and um, even though I just color the gray in to make myself look wiser, but I, I'm getting up there. Um, but I like that I know a lot of you that are around my age and actually just like a little bit older, so that's really fun for me. Um, you know who you are. Um, so. So I, you know, my birthday was actually on a Sunday, and my daughter Lorelai was ecstatic, and she was so excited, like, Daddy, it's your birthday, and um, so she you know, was giving me all these hugs, and I was like, Angie, she is really excited about my birthday, and Angie said, well, hers is the next birthday, so she's, she knows that hers comes after <laughs> yours, so it's kind of <laughs> like, let's get yours over with so that we can move on to her birthday. So she's been into this thing about talking uh, about baby Lorelai, right? Like, what was it like when she was first born? And so she asks me all these questions, you know, how did you guys feel? And, you know, where was I? And then she asks the question, what was my first word? I was like, oh, man, I really wish I could answer that question. And I could not remember, so... I think I told her it was like kung fu or something. Um, I told her I couldn't I couldn't remember it. But Lorelai is just fascinated with like like where did she come from? What is her what is her birth story? And and, and, and a lot of us are are interested in this as well. We we want to know our origin. Where did we where did we come from? You know, there's a the the increase has doubled in the amount of people in 2019 that have taken those DNA tests like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, uh, which I took mine a couple of years ago. Fascinating results. I found out that I was like 99.7 percent broadly Northern European. Shock, shock! Didn't see that one coming. I, I felt like. You know I knew by my lack of rhythm and my pasty white thighs that I was ninety nine point seven percent broadly northern European. <laughs> but you know the, we, we want to know where did we come from right what is what is our origin uh, and and we want to get a sense of our origin because it helps us identify what's our what's our place in this world right like where where do we fit in in this you know, on this planet, where do we fit in culturally? Like, where's our where's our space? And and then once we know kind of where we fit in, then it gives us a sense of like, what do we do? And and all of our stories go this way, right? I mean, think of the the movies that you may see. You know, you have the Lion King. Make sure you get the backstory. The the Batman movies always have their backstory. The the movie Frozen. I need to watch more mature movies. You know, they all have. <laughs> Like their their backstory, because you know you get the backstory, you get the origin story, and then it sets you up for like what what where's their place in this world? What what are they doing? What's the trajectory? What's the trajectory of of their lives? So in a similar uh, in a similar way, that's what we're asking in regards to the story of this church, right? If we want to get a sense of what are we called to do. Right? What is God inviting us into? We need to have a stronger sense of, of who are we? Where where do we come from? What is, what is our backstory? You know, sometimes you, you might you know get introduced to somebody and then you find someone else that knows that person, and so you ask, hey, what's what's their story? What's the story with what's the story with so-and-so? Well, what are you what are you asking? What you're asking is give me a little bit of their history so I get an idea of of who they are and and maybe what what their life is about, right? And so so just like we would be interested in our origin, just like we would be interested in our backstory, uh, we need to be interested in the story of us as a church. Where, where do we come from? what's what's our story? And if we get a sense of of what God has been doing in his church, over the centuries, maybe we can get a stronger sense of what is God inviting us to in our future. So, as we launch this vision series, which next week uh, we're gonna we're gonna be uh, having communion as a church family together, so we won't be hitting the vision series. But then after that, uh, for the uh, the next seven weeks after communion Sunday, uh, we will be focusing on uh, on what our story is. We're gonna be focused on what is God calling us to. As a church, what's what's next for us? So today what I want to do is I want to get a sense of of what it is that we're to do. And the way that I think we'll get a sense of that is by understanding who we are. Where do we come from? What is what is our backstory. And we can ask this for us as a church locally. Right for, for what, what what is Living Faith Alliance Church among the other hundred plus churches that are in the Vineland area? Like what what what's our story? But then it's bigger than that too. What is what is our story as a church globally? Where do we where do we fit into that fit into that narrative? And you see that there's all these changes right that take place. There's all these changes that take place for the church. There's these gr- geographic changes, there's cultural changes, there's generational changes, but the story of the church keeps finding its way forward after generation after generation. right? Culture after culture, the church keeps finding its way forward. So this morning, I, I'm asking that the Holy Spirit would tell us a really cool story. Tell us the story of the church. Tell us the story of the, the church that was, that was birthed out of the work of Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at, and I want to ask God to help us. All right, so let's pray, and then we're going to listen to the Holy Spirit as he tells us a very extraordinary story. So, Father, I ask for your help this morning to tell the story of the church as far beyond my capacity to tell the story of Living Faith Alliance Church is far beyond my capacity because the things that you do are so beyond our understanding. God, even when we look at church history and we can see just the beautiful movements of God, that, that's just the ones that got recorded, not the, the millions of little moments of your grace, of your faithfulness, of your extravagant love. And so I pray, God, that we would know our story this morning, and we would be rooted in this great movement called the church, and we would know our place. And as we get to know our story, as we get to learn our place, we would have vision for what's next. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So the church, uh, it really got its start on the heels of, this isn't an exaggeration, the most extraordinary events in human history. Right? The, the church got its start after Jesus had been arrested, after Jesus had been crucified, after Jesus died, after Jesus was resurrected. And then after Jesus ascended back to the Father, and that's really the official launch then of the church as we know it. So it, it started with Jesus' ascension to the Father, and, and the day of the church is going to come to an end when Jesus comes back as he ascended the first time. right? So, so we live in these bookends of the advent of Jesus, the advance of Jesus, first in his incarnation, death, and ascension. Now we're waiting for him to come again and bring us back to himself. Now it's in this period of time that the church exists. So that's, that's where we are. We have found this unique place in human history as God's people for this season waiting for the Father's return. So this is where we live. And Jesus gives the church some definition at the very beginning. Just before he goes back to the Father, right, he gives us kind of our marching orders of of what is to be the church. And so the story of the church is found in the book of Acts, right? So basically, it's the story of the life of Jesus is found in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then the story, uh, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, So it's the the work of Jesus in the Gospels. Now Acts is going to record the ongoing work of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus sets us up for that right in the beginning of the book of Acts. And so we're going to be moving through the book of Acts um, this morning. So if you have your Bible, you'll want to follow along in terms of big headings. Uh, But we're going to cover a lot of ground, um, both um, historically, geographically, all right, so Acts 1.8, these are Jesus' marching orders, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's talking to uh, his, his disciples. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, so Jesus is, Jesus is framing uh, what the church uh, is going to be. And so he's introducing us to what are really the, the core themes. In Acts 1-8, we can see in kind of its embryonic form, right, what Jesus has designed for the church for all of time. And the first thing we'll see is that the church is to be made up of his witnesses, right? So what is a, what is a witness? Well, a witness is going to be somebody that proclaims. Right, But what is it that they're, they're proclaiming? If you're on the witness stand, you're proclaiming something, but it's predicated on the idea that you've seen something. So this group of people is going to be, they are the witnesses of Jesus. That means they've seen Jesus. They've encountered Jesus. And based on meeting Jesus, they're going to share their story. And so throughout the New Testament, we see Peter sharing his story of how he met Jesus. Paul sharing his story of how he met Jesus. Over and over again, people telling the story of, guess what? Yeah, I got to tell you about this guy I met. Right? So they are bearing witness. So the first theme of the church of Jesus is that there are, um, that they are a Jesus-centered people. They have witnessed him. They are in response to him. They are proclaiming him. The name church, the Greek word is ekklesia, which means called out ones. This is a group of people who are in response to the voice of Jesus. That's the church, the ekklesia. So in summary, here's my, here's my first theme of the church, is that it's a group of disciples, a group of followers that are centered around Jesus. So the church is going to be made up of Jesus-centered disciples, right? That's the first theme of the church that Jesus is introducing here in Acts 1.8. Uh, the second theme is, uh, I'm going to get a little nerdy here, forgive me, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. The you he's talking about is not singular, but plural, right? He's talking about a group of people. So often when we read that, we think individual. But what Jesus is doing in his church is he's forming a community. So yes, it's, it's, it's Jesus-centered disciples, but what they're doing is they're coming together and forming a new kind of community together. And it is a community that has like a community that's in the family business like a community that is picking up on exactly what Jesus had been doing so you collectively will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea in Samaria and in all over the world right that's your that's your job so the church has one mission together it has a kingdom mission right it is to bear witness of the king so here's my, here's my summary form is that this group of people called the church is to have a kingdom mindset. They're to be moving and thinking with the kingdom in mind. You're going to do this together. And so the book of Acts plays out this narrative of, of Jesus-centered disciples right, forming kingdom-minded churches, and that advances geographically, it advances culturally, and it advances through generations. That's the, that's the outline of what's going to happen now in the rest of the book of Acts. So these twin themes then form the vision of Jesus' passion for his church Jesus centered disciples, kingdom minded churches. That's it, that's Jesus' vision. That's the, that's the passion that he has. And these two work in tandem together. They're not just completely separate ideas. It's kind of like, you know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first, a Jesus centered disciple uh, or the kingdom minded churches? Because it kind of works this way a Jesus centered disciple partners with God in making kingdom, uh, Jesus centered disciples partner with God in making kingdom minded churches. But kingdom minded churches, Right, Make Jesus-centered disciples. They partner with God in making Jesus-centered disciples. And the story goes on and on and on of people that that engage Jesus. They meet Jesus, and their life starts to orbit around the sun, orbit around Jesus. They become Jesus-centered disciples. And then they partner up with some kingdom-minded people and then you know what they do? They they introduce some other people by bearing witness of Jesus. And those other people become Jesus-centered disciples and their life starts to orbit around Jesus. And then they partner up with kingdom-minded communities. And that story gets repeated geographically, crossing geographic boundaries, crossing cultural boundaries, crossing generational boundaries. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through the book of Acts looking at five markers of this theme happening over and over and over again, right? So I'm only going to pick out five um, as we move through the book of Acts. And so you'll see, I'll give you large uh, chunks of chapters that uh, we're talking about. Um, where we see Jesus-centered disciples, kingdom-minded communities, and then this advance happening across cultures, across geog- geographic regions, right, and across generations. So here's the first, the first narrative. First of five I want to show you in the book of Acts. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas, the son of James, All these, one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. Ends up being about 120 of them. And you know what they do? They're Jesus-centered. So Jesus has just given them instructions, and they're obeying his voice, and they're gathering in Jerusalem, and they're praying together. And they're crying out to God. They're waiting on the work of the Holy Spirit. So we see these Jesus-centered disciples. So the, the original 11 are gathered, plus this band of Jesus followers. And then they're waiting. And what are they waiting on? Well, Acts 1-7 to really tells the story of being a kingdom-minded church in Jerusalem. right? So that's where Jesus said they would be his witnesses first in Jerusalem. That's what he said in Acts 1-8. So that's exactly where they start. They start here in Jerusalem. And then what happens? Well, the day of Pentecost happens. That's when, that's when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit among His people, and the tongues of fire, it's this amazing unity and diversity rests individually on His people. But it rests on all of them. right? So you have a Jesus-centered disciple. Right, But with a kingdom-minded community, and out of that, this great gospel proclamation is happening. And they are speaking, and and they're speaking in tongues that they, they don't know, but others are hearing the good news of Jesus spoken in their own language, which is them bearing witness. Now, you're getting all of these pilgrims in Jerusalem getting to bear witness or getting to meet Jesus. They're hearing the news of Jesus. And the church expands. So the Holy Spirit brought them together, one language, empowered by one spirit, which rested on them individually. A kingdom-minded community that was alive with the presence of Jesus doing his work. And then the story moves on, right? Because it wasn't just Jerusalem. We're crossing geographic regions. What was next? Right? It was Judea and Samaria. And so one of the key stories Uh, One of the key stories in Acts 8 through 12 uh, is a story of a new disciple that is being born, and his name is Cornelius. You had Philip who interacted with the Ethiopian, right? These are stories. Maybe you wonder, why are these stories in the book of Acts? Well, the reason these stories are in the book of Acts is because they're telling the way in which the early church was fulfilling exactly what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, that you'll be in Jerusalem, and then you'll be in Judea, Ethiopian eunuch. Right, then you'll be in Samaria. Oh, now let's bring in Cornelius right, and tell the story of the gospel now reaching to another cultural group. And if you remember, the story of Cornelius was a fascinating story where Peter has this vision and uh, uh, God tells him in this vision to, to get up and eat what is unclean food. Right, And and what's happening is there's this disentangling, this dismantling of the gospel from Jewish tradition so that as the gospel expands to the Gentile world, it expands with integrity. And it's not being added to with all these rules and all of these laws. And so so, uh, Peter is a Jesus-centered disciple. And so as he's moving on mission, guess what? God's transforming him. He's having to be changed. He's having to be challenged. So if he's going to give the message to this Gentile, right, this Gentile named Cornelius, right, then he has to give the correct message of Jesus. He has to bear witness to Jesus, not bear witness to his Judaism. And so God is disentangling Peter because Peter is a Jesus-centered disciple. And so he's going to make another Jesus-centered disciple in Cornelius, And this story reinforces that there's no special privilege in this new community. In a kingdom-minded community, there's not people that have special privileges because of their their race, because of their gender. There's no special privileges there. That's God's design for his his kingdom. And what you see is that this kingdom is doing exactly, or this kingdom-minded group of people is doing exactly what Jesus said to do. Right? They're kingdom-minded. They're in on the family business, which is about bearing witness to, uh, to the truth of who Jesus is in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And so that's exactly what has happened by the time we get to chapter 12 in the book of Acts. So then we move on to our third story in the book of Acts. It uh, comes up, actually, it kind of picks up a little bit sooner than this, I think around Acts chapter 9, Uh, is really where this section starts. But we're gonna see them uh, moving uh, geographically into what is the other parts of the world is where they're gonna go now, Uh, and that's through Paul's missionary journey. So their Jesus-centered disciples are revealed in the fact that there's this guy named Saul who's persecuting the church, and he's actually on his way to Damascus, and Jesus just radically interrupts his life. So he shows up, actually knocks him off of his horse, introduces himself to him. So he introduces himself to Saul, who would later become Paul. And Paul's life is radically changed at that moment. He becomes a Jesus-centered disciple on the road to Damascus. And then Paul, this is really cool, is baptized by a guy named Ananias, which if you think about what Ananias was asked to do, he was asked to go to a guy who had been persecuting Christians, persecuting Jesus' followers. Now he gets word from God that you know, his life has changed. That had to be an awkward first meeting, right? So then he disciples and baptizes Saul, who would become Paul, and then this guy named Barnabas enters into Paul's life, starts to disciple him, right? So you have these Jesus-centered disciples, right? They're, they're growing, they're maturing, And then this beautiful thing happens as uh, I think it's about 14 years later after Paul's conversion, uh, he is uh, at this city uh, north of Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, Judea, it's not in Samaria, it's now into what would be the the other parts of the world, this city in Antioch. So you see it in the uh, top right of your screen there. Uh, And out of the city of Antioch, that's when the first missionary journey launches. I just want you to think about that for a moment. Where did this all start? It started in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem isn't the first missionary church, isn't the first sending church. Right? Really, at this point, the, the impetus for, for, for the, the mission of the kingdom of God is coming from a church that's not even in Israel. It's in Antioch. That's where the first missionary journey is launched from. So God has gotten uh, Paul's attention. And listen to to this narrative here in Acts chapter 13. Now, in the church of Antioch, there were uh, prophets, teachers. There's a guy named Barnabas. We already met him. There was Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, And Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. That just seems so, I don't know, casual. They're 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 fasting, they're praying, they're listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You know we should set apart. I think we should set apart Saul and, and Barnabas for for some work that that God has called them to. Like that little prayer time changed the course of human history, right? Like they they were listening to the Holy Spirit. They didn't say, you know what? We should check with Jerusalem. We need to we need to give them a call and make sure that it's all right with them if we send out some missionaries from here, right? They, they were a kingdom-minded group of people of diverse gifting, right, prophets and teachers. They were of diverse cultures, right? So you had Simon called Niger, which would be Simon the Black, Lucius of Cyrene. Then you have this guy, Menean who had been brought up with, like, royalty. So you have uh, diverse gifting, diverse, eth- diverse ethnicity, Right You have diverse uh, um, uh, like cultural standing, but all of them are equal in this church, and they're praying, and they decide to set apart their kingdom-minded people. And so they're together, and they're setting apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that God had called them to. And so what we see is this ever-expanding circle of influence. Jerusalem, Samaria, now they're launching them out. Antioch would have been right up in this area, right up in there, right? So now they're gonna get launched out and this is going to encompass, this large circle is gonna encompass the missionary work of Paul. So they get sent out on their first missionary journey and in their first missionary journey, they're gonna primarily focus here in Asia, Asia Minor, right here. And then in their second missionary journey, they're going to expand. So then we move on to Acts 15 to 18, which gets us into the second missionary journal, uh, second missionary journey. And in that missionary journey, uh, we meet um, some new Jesus-centered disciples. Uh, we meet a woman uh, named Lydia. Uh, and Lydia is in this city called Philippi, which what's very significant is this is the demarcation between Asia and Europe. So in the first missionary journey, Paul was here. In the second missionary journey, he visited again these churches, and then he heard the Macedonian call, and he went across into Europe. Uh, And on the Sabbath day, he goes out and he meets this woman named Lydia. And she was a pretty successful uh, small business owner. Actually, I don't know the size of her business. She was a successful business owner. She was a seller of purple. And she becomes the, the first European convert to, to follow Jesus as Saul bears witness of Jesus. And she becomes a disciple. And now her life is, is centered around Jesus. So what does she do? Well, as a Jesus-centered disciple, she, she partners with God in forming a, a, a kingdom-minded community. So she says to Paul and Barnabas, hey, just come stay with us for a while. And then she introduces her household to Jesus, and her household becomes the platform by which Paul starts to bring the gospel to Europe in the city of Philippi. There's this um, this is a, a cathedral that is built in honor of uh, of Lydia. It's still in Philippi today. Um, it's a beautiful cathedral. I think it's pretty cool to mark the, the, the geographic location of, of such a special thing that God did uh, in, in Lydia's life. So then we move on to the third missionary journey. The story continues. uh, Jesus-centered disciples are continued to emerge. So now we're at the third missionary journey, uh, and this really covers Acts chapter 18, uh, and I'm gonna roll into all of chapter, up to chapter 28 uh, in this story. So the third missionary journey uh, is Acts 18. Paul meets a power couple uh, named uh, Priscilla uh, and her husband, Aquila, Uh, and so Paul meets them after he has gone from Athens Uh, He went from Athens to Corinth, and then he meets them there in Corinth, and they are tent makers, which also is what Paul does for a living as he's traveling on his missionary journeys. He's making a, uh, he has a side income. Uh, That income is through making tents, literally, and so then these two are also tent makers, so they start working together. They become followers of Jesus. They become Jesus-centered disciples, And so what Jesus-centered disciples do is they partner with God in forming kingdom-minded communities. So they actually leave with Paul uh, as Paul is going to go visit some of his previous churches. And so Paul goes to Ephesus, and they decide to stay at Ephesus because Ephesus is a new church plant. It's relatively young, um, so they're going to stay, and they're going to do their best to be able to help out. Uh, one of the things that they do, Paul then goes on and they stay in, in Ephesus and they meet a guy named Apollos. Well, these are kingdom-minded people and Apollos has some understanding of Jesus, but he doesn't quite get it. He doesn't really understand who Jesus is or what Jesus has accomplished. He hasn't encountered the Holy Spirit. So so they minister to him. They become disciples of Apollos. And so they work with Apollos because they're kingdom-minded people, and they're forming a kingdom-minded community because that's what Jesus-centered disciples do. And with that, we've come to the end of the first century. And at the end of the first century, whoop, I don't want that yet. At the end of the first century, the gospel has made it from Jerusalem all the way, I'm showing, I'm pointing down here, it helps me to be able to see it. From Jerusalem all the way now to Rome is where Acts 28 ends with Paul being able to, he's in prison, but he's like, hey, don't worry, I'm in prison, but I'm preaching the gospel. And so he's being a faithful witness. He's doing exactly what Jesus said in Acts 8. right? You're going to go... Um, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, uh, in Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. Paul's like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm up to. So he is a witness of King Jesus, and that's, that's where uh, Acts uh, 28 ends. So by the end of the first century, the gospel has made it to Rome and a small group of blue collar fishermen and their band of 120 Jesus followers were faithful as Jesus centered disciples forming kingdom minded communities that then transcended cultures. It wasn't like everybody was speaking the same language, doing the same. It transcended cultural differences. And they had their bumps along the way. But but as Jesus-centered disciples, they they persevered. With kingdom-minded communities, they persevered. They persevered geographically, crossing boundaries. And then they were passing it on from one generation to the next. So we see a faithful group of people. But the power of the gospel does not end in Rome, and it doesn't end in the first century. Right? Maybe, maybe the, the, the Bible is finished in writing Acts 28, but the church of God is not finished in writing Acts 29. Right? There's, there's more generations to come. There's more geographical boundaries to be crossed. There's more expressions of culture that need the witness of King Jesus. And so history continues on. And so if this is the birth of our story, our story continues. Our story is a global story that spans generations and cultures. I want to show you a video, uh, and I think it it gives a good visual representation of this. And so what you're going to see is you're going to see uh, a map, right? And it's going to be similar uh, at first to what you see here. And you're going to see... Uh, You're going to see the area of Israel. And so the gospel proclamation will be represented by a light color. And what you're going to see is as time moves on, you'll see an ongoing clock. As time moves on, the the gospel influence is going to expand. And it's actually going to run the narrative of gospel influence all the way up to 2016. So it's a little bit dated, but it goes all the way up to 2016. And you're going to see the ebb and flow of gospel influence. And you're also going to see the impact of, of certain, um, of, of certain um, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, of certain cultures, not cultures, of political movements and how the gospel was either able to flourish within that political movement or how it was suppressed within that political movement. But I think it's a very telling video uh, that, that helps us understand that the story of the church, the witness, of the gospel of Jesus uh, is an ongoing narrative. So here it is. So what they do in this video is they track gospel influence by looking at archaeological evidence at certain time periods. So they're looking at what would be physical expressions of gospel witness. So like um, just symbols on gravestones, churches being built, families of of text being copied, right, would indicate that the, the gospel had come to these certain places in these certain time periods, So it's this ongoing narrative that we get to be part of. And it's throughout history where there's Jesus-centered disciples and kingdom-minded churches that spans the globe, generations, and cultures. And so let me take a few more minutes to complete the story, to complete the story of, of, of how did this continue on throughout history to where we get to be part of it. So let me take a couple of minutes and and show you how the church continued to grow and expand. Uh, It went into Northern Africa, it went into Asia, and not only did it grow geographically, but it also influenced culture. And in the first century... Uh, actually, it influenced oops, went a little bit too far. Actually, it influenced culture to the point where uh, you remember in the first century uh, there was persecution for the Christians under the Roman Empire. But then, within 200 years, uh, Christianity was so influential that it actually became the state religion uh, of Rome. Right, so it, it became it became law to be to be Christian. Right, so it started to influence culture. And while that was good news in the sense of, of the removal of persecution, uh, it also kind of changed because now the influx of people calling themselves Christians were not people that were under the threat of persecution. It was actually people that it actually was easier now to be labeled a Christian than it was not. So then the church started to be filled up with people who really weren't Jesus-centered disciples. And, and they weren't thinking kingdom of Jesus on their mind as a community. They started to think kingdom of us. And so true followers of Jesus had to respond to that. And so around 300 AD, there's this movement, and we call it the Desert Fathers, where these disciples of Jesus, where their lives were wrapped up around Jesus, they couldn't stay within this corrupt church any longer, and they had to remove themselves literally to the desert. But... As Jesus-centered disciples, so Anthony is considered one of the first of of these desert fathers, and there's many others, and uh, it actually uh, spans uh, quite a few hundred years of people having to remove themselves from culture uh, based on obedience as Jesus-centered disciples. But as they removed themselves, they also realized, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be part of a kingdom-minded community. So they started to gather people together with them. And as they did that, they started to influence the world around them. So uh, Augustine of Hippo in North Africa, he created a community of, uh, of people that were committed to the study of Scripture. You know, and about 200 years later, St. Patrick... Uh, does that in Ireland. He creates these communities that are, that are really uh, communities that are a refuge for people, and, and people are uh, able to experience like, life-sustaining skills in the communities that St. Patrick started. But all of them were kingdom-minded communities, and they were bearing witness of the truth of Jesus in places of the world that hadn't heard his name before. And then we keep going on in history. We move up to the 1500s. And we have several Jesus-centered disciples that are, again, facing corruption. At that point in time, the corruption was within the the Catholic Church. And so these are the the people that we know know as the reformers. So in response to Jesus-centered disciples... Uh, They they needed to say some things. So on October 31st, 1517, a young monk named Martin Luther, who was a Jesus-centered disciple, was convicted by the Holy Spirit that salvation was through faith, by grace, alone. And just like in the early church, there had been some confusion around the purity of the gospel. And so Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, saying, hey, we got to talk about this. Here's some problems. And, and nailing that to the door, uh, that, that sparked what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And with this act, he, he lit a match that, again, changed the trajectory of the church. And he wasn't the first or he wasn't the last You have Zwingli, you have uh, working in Switzerland, uh, you have Huss, you have uh, Wycliffe in England, you have John Calvin in France, all of them doing their part all over Europe as they were Jesus-centered disciples, and they started to gather some people together as kingdom-minded communities. And what they did was they made the word of God accessible in the language of the people, they, ch- they changed the, the worship style, making it more accessible for people, to be pra- uh, to, to people, for people to engage the presence of God. They preached the doctrine of grace so that they would create kingdom-minded communities. And the kingdom of God continued, right? The kingdom of God then continued to move. So let's run up into the 1700s where we have a group of Jesus-centered disciples. You have the Moravians in Germany that were just in prayer for the advancement of the kingdom of God, and they gathered together in prayer. You have the Puritans uh, in England that were studying deep theology of God and and calling for radical Jesus-centered discipleship. And then you have the Methodist movement that starts around the 1700s. Uh, John and Charles Wesley, where they they have these bands, these communities that come together to encourage each other to grow. They have a kingdom-minded focus. And then we move into the 1800s. And one of the really cool things that happens in the 1800s is we start to track the movement of the church into the United States. So historically, we have uh, what is called the, the first great awakening. We have leaders like uh, a New England Puritan pastor coming on kind of the end of the, maybe the last of the Puritan pastors. His name is Jonathan Edwards. And under the leadership of, uh, uh, under the leadership of men like Jonathan Edwards, who are Jesus-centered disciples, we have these kingdom-minded communities that are growing up. Right, and then another hundred years later, we have a guy named A.B. Simpson who starts to do a work in, in New York City among some Italian dock workers because that's what, the, that's what bearing witness of King Jesus compelled him to do. And so the gospel continues to expand in generations um, across geographic regions, across cultures, until one day... Uh, Until one day, it was after the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863. It was after World War I. It was after 1955 when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat to a white man in Montgomery, Alabama. It was after Billy Graham started his evangelistic campaigns and Martin Luther King was a civil rights leader. It was just before 1974 and the Watergate scandal and President Richard Nixon resigned. It was just before that that there was a uh, a husband and a wife, Bill and Victoria Bowers, that believed that what God wanted to do was to form a kingdom-minded community here in South Jersey. And so they started to pray, um, and and they believed in uh, the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church, and they began to pray and they began to talk uh, to some friends of theirs. Um, and Bill and Victoria, they were just, uh, they were extraordinary people in the sense that they loved Jesus, but they were just ordinary people. You know, what I, what I understand of uh, Victoria Bowers, I didn't know her personally, um, but Victoria Bowers, actually uh, Bower Building over at Cumberland Christian School is named after uh, Victoria Bowers. Uh, apparently, she was a person you wanted to go to for advice. Uh, she was sound uh, in her biblical understanding. She was strong and steady and apparently great at Scrabble. And Bill, uh, he loved Jesus. Apparently, he wasn't the best of musicians, but he led uh, worship at that time. Um, And as far as I can tell, what they did is they shared with some friends that were part of an Alliance church in Pittman about what God was putting on their heart. And their friends were Dr. James Bates and Lily Bates, which is uh, the mom and dad of Gene Bates, uh, who attends our church. And so in 1973, they started to pray together. They started to, to talk together. And they called this Christian and Missionary Alliance and said, we believe God's calling us to have a church here. And so the Christian and Missionary Alliance uh, sent a, a pastor, Pastor Arnold, uh, and his wife uh, Hazel, um, and they purchased a property on Singer Lane here in Vineland. I think this is the right house. I looked up the address. Um, some of you might know the answer to that. But, they, but they, what they started to do is have a Bible study. They started to form a kingdom-minded community together. And they started to study God's word together. And they started to pray together. And then Jean Bates started to come around and connect. She brought her daughter, daughter uh, Laurie, who was then part of the, the youth group at that time. Laurie is now Laurie Jeremiah. Um, and uh, so, so they were part of the church, um, and uh, so they started praying. God started to work. Um, Gene Bates told me about the first converts that came into the door. These were the, who were the first baby Christians that walked into the door? It was this uh, hippie couple named Larry and Leslie Barufi uh, that walked into the church. They said, what is up with these people? And Larry and Leslie said, why did we stay? We had nothing in common with these people. But I think what they had in common with those people is that they were walking into a group of kingdom-minded people that just loved them and loved them extravagantly, loved them despite their, their clothes, despite their uh, knowledge or lack thereof of who God is. And so they began to be discipled. And they became Jesus-centered disciples. And then uh, Erica Cook told me she came very early on, around 1975, 1976, uh, and she remembers seeing that faith impacting the next generation as Larry and Leslie dedicated the first uh, baby uh, in what was going to be the Vineland Church of the Christian Missionary Alliance. That baby they dedicated was my wife, uh, Angelina. And so the kingdom of God is impacting then a new generation, So you see, it is the same narrative. It's the same story. Jesus-centered disciples partnering with God to create kingdom-minded churches. It's the same vision Jesus had that he spoke to his disciples in the very beginning of Acts. It's that same storyline played out across geographic boundaries, across cultural boundaries, down through generations till we are today hearing the same invitation from King Jesus that we would be Jesus-centered disciples partnering with God in forming kingdom-minded communities. And what are kingdom-minded communities going to do? They're gonna partner with God in raising up Jesus-centered disciples as they fulfill what Jesus had called them to all the way back in Acts 1.8. It's still the same charge. It's still the same calling. It's still the same identity. But now it's our turn. Now, Now we're the ones we've been waiting in the line of history and now it's now it's our turn now it's our turn to take this invitation of king jesus to partner with him right in living as jesus centered disciples forming kingdom minded communities and we get to take that call and march into 2019 2020 2021 and and what are the geographic regions that we're going to we're going to cross into what are the, the cultural boundaries that we're going to push past? What are the generations that are going to be impacted by our faithfulness to the same call? This is, our, this is our backstory. This is, this is where we come from. This sets our course for what God calls us to next. So, how will we partner with God in making Jesus centered disciples and kingdom minded churches? Are you ready to be part of what Jesus is building? You might be thinking, Greg, are you you seriously saying that what, what God is calling us to do is the same thing that he called Peter to do? Same thing he called Paul to do? It's the same impetus that, that 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 called the Antioch Church to to send out Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. Are you saying it's the same thing that that God used in calling the Desert Fathers to Himself, the same thing that God used for for Martin Luther and John Calvin and in, in leading the Protestant Reformation? Is this the same vision, right, that that led the First Great Awakening and and Jonathan Edwards? Is this the same vision that, that led the Bowers to be part of starting a church here in South Jersey? The answer is yes. It's the same calling. It's the same vision. Yes, culture's different. Yes, geography's different. Yes, the generation looks different, but it's, it's the same story. It's the same thread of history. So you're thinking that's a tall order to stand in that line. I don't don't feel like I can do that. Well, as your pastor, let me be very clear, you can't. I can't. That's why in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, and you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses. We get to do that because the power of God dwells inside of us. The gospel of Jesus gives us access to the Father and the Spirit of God dwells inside of us so we can get in on the family business. The thing that we have to answer is, are we willing to walk in that great adventure? Are are we willing to to step into things that that maybe are a little bit confusing, but since we're Jesus-centered, we will follow him into it? but we don't have to do that alone because he's calling us, right, to be part of a kingdom-minded community. So I wanna close with, with two questions for you to consider. How are you doing right now living the vision that Jesus has called you to? I imagine my sermon isn't like new information for you. Right? I mean, I telling you, to, the, the call of God is that we would be Jesus-centered disciples forming kingdom-minded communities. I don't think anyone's like, "Wow, I've never considered that before. Maybe haven't used those words." But so how are you doing living this out? What's in front of you as, as the obstacles for you to walk in obedience to what the Father has called you to? What, what's holding you back from living as a Jesus-centered disciple? What's holding you back from, from, from exploring what it means to engage your community as, with a kingdom mindset? What are your obstacles? What are your challenges? So as the worship team leads us in this next song, I just, I just want you to consider the story that you're part of. I want you to consider your backstory. And based on the beauty of what God has already done, what is the obstacle for you in running into your future? All right? So I want to invite you to stand up. You're welcome to sing along, but even more than singing along, I want you to to give thought to what's in front of you. What is God inviting you to? What are the challenges that you're facing?
2: Christmas time.
3: To say thank you to some of the people uh, Greg mentioned earlier. So I know Larry's here. Larry, can you raise your hand so that we know who you are? I don't see Leslie here, but at uh, least, uh, where is she? She was hiding. How about Jean Bates? Is Jean Bates here? Second service, okay, all right, thank you. Thank you because um, you're part of that story and you're part of what God shaped to become our present. Um, and I think it's good for us to uh, acknowledge them because uh, they offer us a place of reference in the sense that there is a time when we need to make A decision a clear decision to move from being spectators to a place of becoming participants the best illustration I can give you is marriage when Cindy and I were dating she would talk to me about the traditions of her family and she would hear about the traditions uh, and in some cases lack of traditions in my family and it wasn't until i became a full participant and married her and went to their holiday celebrations and meals and and kind of got on the flow became a participant that i i came to really know what they were about what they value and what they would give priority to so it's the same thing for us as a church It comes a moment where you have to move from a place of spectator to a place of full participant. And you may be either in a place of being a spectator, you may be a full participant now, or you may be somewhere in that spectrum. What we want to do is invite you, no matter where you're at, do two things, seriously. Two things. Fight for your discipleship. Take initiative to be a Christ-centered discipleship. Nobody else can take that initiative as you can. And it is your responsibility to take that initiative. We have so many things to help you in that process, but take that initiative. Fight for that. The second thing is plug in. Go to a class, to a pastorate, to some event. If you've never connected with this family, just look for some excuse. I heard a good one Uh, recently, ballroom dancing. So plug in somewhere where you can start connecting and getting into the flow of the life of this family. So I'm going to pray for us. And uh, if if you're in in that spectrum, needing to overcome some obstacles, have some questions, we're going to be around to pray for you. So those who are willing to come and pray for people, you can come forward. I'll pray and I'll dismiss us. Father, thank you. Thank you for reminding us through Greg what a heritage we come from what a heritage we have received what is our story and the story that has shaped our present and the invitation that is before us so father we ask come and help us come and help us to fulfill the vision that you have for us in this place and in this time in jesus name we ask amen god bless you